0: and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, Pete Wardgen here. So this is probably our most ambitious podcast series yet. Why? Because everyone in investing has an opinion and an interpretation of Warren Buffett and his investment style. If you Google Uncle Warren, you'll get 72 million results and there's no doubt that he's the king of investing. What we want to do is determine if we can distill Buffett's 80-odd years of investing into a podcast mini-series that can help you as an investor. So we'll list a few Buffettisms and we'll dissect each one in a little detail to try and extract wisdom. What lessons can we learn? Which are the important lessons? And what we can see is that many of them are on the same topics and expresses the same point in different ways. And we'll finish this series with the ultimate question, is Warren Buffett unique? And can we all be a little bit more like Buffett? So join us as we discuss the Buffett philosophy, his principles of investing, and what we can learn and whether we can replicate his style to build your wealth. And after all. As Buffett himself said, your best investment is in yourself, and there's nothing that compares to it. So, join Steve Moriarty and myself as we dissect a few Buffettisms and see what we can glean from the master. Cheers. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast. With me, Peter Wargent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. How's it going, Steve? Good Pete. Good Pete. How are you? Well yeah, to be honest I feel like horse shit because I've had a, a vaccine dose in the past uh, 24 hours so it feels like somebody's been somebody's been punching my arm and I feel generally like horse crap and a bit ropey but uh, I can't complain I guess because uh, they've accelerated <laughs> through the vaccine. So. Yeah, well, well nobody wants to listen
1: to you complain on the podcast anyway so get on
0: with it. No that's right. I'm sure you didn't tune in to listen to my vaccination woes. So we are. Talking today about one of the great Buffettisms, only invest in simple businesses that you understand. So just as an intro on the theme of uh, horse manure, so the great horse manure crisis of 1894, I was reading about recently. So in 1893, the Times newspaper said that the biggest obstacle to development in London would be horse manure, because uh, with the growing population... They predicted that London would be under nine feet of horse manure within 50 years. But of course, it's easy to look back on this as with, and be snide or scornful and just think, well, how stupid could people be? But you've got to remember, this is not the Sunday sport. This is the world's most reputable newspaper. And it was the finest minds of that time. They just couldn't solve the problem. Of uh, basically the horse dung everywhere, but the reason that it's become known as an analogy is that we're unable to solve some seemingly insurmountable problems because we're looking at them from the long from the wrong angle, yeah. and then new technology comes along and the problem is solved, and it all looks very obvious in hindsight. But in 1894, this was a serious urban development issue. So. Famously, Buffett invests in simple businesses that he could understand to try and sidestep those kind of issues. So today, Steve, we're going to look at, well, as Buffett himself said, we like one foot hurdles that we can step over rather than looking for those big seven foot hurdles. So we're looking at the six criteria that Buffett would use to identify a simple business that he can understand.
1: Yes, funny, I was thinking today about technology because I'm always a little bit, I'm always a little bit gruff on the younger generations, but like, oh, you boomers have had it so good. And I was thinking if I had a list when I was, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, when I was about 18 or 19, and I, you know, you run through the stuff and you think there was no air conditioning, there was no, there were no uh, mobile phones, you know, public transport was pretty scarce, cars were awful, they were real death traps. You didn't need seatbelts. Well, you didn't have seatbelts. You know, there were quite a few things that sound quality was terrible. You know, you bought records, they got scratched. And then, you know, you'd buy cassettes and you'd tape records on the cassette and all this sort of stuff. So it's interesting because as, as you're sort of saying, the 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 main theme or one of the one of the main themes I think Buffett has been really adamant about and is sort of famous for is not buying technology. And it's interesting because it feeds back into that thing about, well, technology is really good for society, but it's actually not that good for investors. And it goes to the heart of Buffett's ideas about this durable competitive advantage stuff. And so he likes to look at these six criteria as you, we'll go through them one by one and discuss them. But the, the, the funny thing is when you look at them is they're all fairly quite simple, really, or, you know, sort of bland. You know, like it's not, there's not a lot of deep complexity going on there. And it's just interesting that something so simple, I suppose, has made one guy so goddamn wealthy.
0: So before we run through these six criteria, I think it makes for a pretty um, straightforward and structured podcast. There's just six to run through. But we talked there just about technology, but obviously Buffett bought shares in Apple. In fact, took a huge position in Apple in recent years. But I think as you've touched on in another recording, Apple these days is a bit more like an infrastructure stock. I mean, I even think about it from my own personal viewpoint. When I uh, first uh, started traveling as a young man in the late 1990s, I used to phone up my parents from, or my mum, I used to phone up from Bondi Beach or Cronulla Beach in the late 1990s. And it was a dollar a minute that we usually phoned after the pubs had closed because of the the time difference and we there was a massive delay on the phone and so essentially once a month you'd have a, a sort of uh, a half-cut phone call to parents but that was except for letter writing that was the extent of of contact of course these days you know i think about my mum or pops and you know, they're real technophobes, you know, as you'd expect for that generation. But you, know, you can just buy them an iPad and say, right, you press this button for Flickr, you get all our photos, you press this button if you want to call us, and uh, just ignore the rest of it. And it is so good. And it has improved their life so immeasurably in many respects as they get to that stage in life. You just can't argue with it. And obviously, Buffett has uh, taken the view that Apple is such a, a business that can generate such enormous free cash flows, it's more like it's a part of the infrastructure than a, a true sort of pure tech play?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think um, that was the thing that struck me when he purchased Apple was, besides it being cheap, it was about, Buffett is into old, utility, you know, I, I I, harp, and I think we talked about it last week, I was going to say I harp on it, and I probably do, you know, stocks with bond-like qualities. You know, I need to know whether it's going to be around for another 50 years because that's his holding period. So when you look at all the, and the idea of what we talk about with these Buffettisms is to actually bring them all together, and when you look at it, it's all pretty simple when you understand what he's trying to do, I suppose. And so when we, you know, when we look at this six criteria, you sort of see that everything else Buffett talks about fits into that criteria. And it's, again, that stuff I'm just saying, you know, like you just find yourself always going back to, a, oh, well, Buffett says, you know, durable competitive advantage. Oh, well, Buffett says stocks with a bond like quality. You know, Buffett says simple companies. Buffett says trustful people they all rotate around this idea of simplicity which we don't think technology is we always get sold the idea and indeed it's one of the I suppose advertising features about whiz bang technology is the amount of complexity that goes into you know for example making a smartphone you know there's like I think there's like 30 countries involved in making the smartphone you know rare earths all sorts of materials and all sorts of stuff. So behind that simple stuff that Buffett talks about is a whole raft of technology, but he's able to, and as we said last week, he's able to just decipher what the value is. Where is the value? Not necessarily, oh, isn't that an exciting product? Yeah, but is it valuable? Is there a moat there?
0: Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's run through these six criteria then. And this came from Berkshire a letter to shareholders some years ago. So we're following some criteria that have been clearly laid out here. So first and foremost, generally speaking, large purchases. Now, obviously, that's partly because Buffett manages a very large pool of funds. But he looks for at least, certainly back then, it's a few years ago now, at least $75 million of pre-tax earnings, unless it's a business that will slot into an existing business unit. So, for example, huge companies like Coca-Cola, or Visa, Apple that we mentioned. So relatively simple businesses. I guess the the fact that they're large, old and reliable is, feeds back into the survivorship theme They will be around for the long run. So that's a big part of it. So Steve, uh, fill us in a bit on that. But also, are there any Aussie equivalent companies that we could look at, or are they mainly international opportunities? Because one of the really interesting things that I've learned over the years from working with you is that if you look at, international stock markets that are cheap like japan or russia you can actually find the big systemic dividend paying companies um, that are themselves cheap just simply because the international index has become cheap nothing to do with the, the, the company itself
1: yeah, yeah. That's one of the the things I really like doing. Last week it was Turkey, by the way. We're back in Turkey again. We normally do on a periodic basis when it falls 20 or 30%. But yeah, the it starts again with his overall thing where he looks at he's predominantly American of course, but he has branched out a little bit. The one thing that's important as you mentioned Pete was the large, you know, sort of systemic dividend payers, solid earnings, but they're in very sort of unsexy industries you know coca cola is drinks visa does money apple is in telecommunications burlington north is a railway you know he owns the truck stop places you know so they're all really sort of simple businesses and what i think what makes them e- easy is the thing of the characteristics that they have and we'll talk about that a little bit further but the main ones are basically a dominant market share great operating margins and the barriers to entry or the moats, as Buffett calls them. And then when you look at those companies, generally you find, you know, you're not going to find a company that's five years old that is, it may have those qualities, but what Buffett says is, yeah, but I don't know where it's going to be in another 10 years. And that's his criteria because he's sort of saying once you get an old company and it sort of fits in with Taleb's idea of, you know, the Lindy effect, the longer it's been around, the longer it will be around. And I think it it boils down to, if you've got a company that's been through recessions, and <clears throat> excuse me, the product can't be sort of overtaken or have technology put into it, then you're probably on a pretty safe bet. If you look at Australia, in our old sort of old companies, you've got the banks, of course, Woolies and Coles. More recently, you've got things like realestate.com and domain, even realestate.com had a wow of a time there for a while because it was the only, basically the only one that was really killing the market. So, you know, they all have, all of those companies have the same sort of characteristic that Buffett talks about. They've got a moat, they've been around a long time, they've got market share. So you've got, you know, Bunnings, the oligopoly, Woolies and Coles as the duopoly, and you've got the four banks as the oligopoly, hence the reason why Australia makes really great market returns.
0: Yeah, I mean, the banks have obviously had their challenges and their ups and downs over the the years and decades, but uh, I guess if you're in there for the long run, the the earnings and the the dividends have been fantastic. So that's, I think, point number one covered. So, criteria number two consistent earning power that's been demonstrated. So, not relying too much on future projections and not really that interested in the turnaround stories, Buffett. I think one of the things that he probably learned from his early days is that turnaround stories don't always turn around. And therefore, he's, as you mentioned, much more interested in Uh, stocks with a bond-like quality. This is an interesting concept, the volatility drag, and it's probably one that investors don't think enough about. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of volatility on returns, because I I don't think, in fact, I, I know this is not very well understood.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really important point for investors. A couple of things really ring out at me when I sort of chat to people about this. When you see those things that say, Oh the you know the the stock market compounds at you know seven percent and the reality is even when you lose a use a lower level of compounding, it doesn't really work that way because you don't just compound at seven percent every year. And again, it's the volatility where you go plus seven, plus sixteen, plus twelve, minus forty-two. And that's what really kills you. And so what Buffett is saying or or alluding to is he doesn't want that volatility. So he wants a smooth earnings path. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It just has to be fairly smooth. He understands that companies will have a one-off problem. He doesn't really worry about that. What he doesn't like, well, I'm, I'm wrong there. What he likes is volatility because that gives him the opportunity to buy. But what he doesn't like is volatility in earnings. So he likes volatility of stock prices because that allows him to buy things cheaply when markets and individuals panic. But he doesn't like the earnings volatility. He likes the steady earnings there.
0: Yeah, so this is one that's worth going back to to listen to one of our earlier uh, podcast right back in the beginning where we talked about the geometric return because I, yeah. I've seen all of those sort of quilted of returns and even for Australia, they, I've, I've seen people saying to me, "Oh well, seven percent per annum over fifteen years," and it's a bit like, "Well, hang on a second, you've got in, within that seven percent per annum, you've got a minus fifty and a plus eighty depending on which ETF or which product you are in." And I think this is an important consideration depending on your stage of your investment career is that a 50% drawdown might only change the average return, in inverted commas, uh, marginally. But in the here and now, you've lost half your money. And I think <laughs> now this is a, a volatility drag. There, there are good reasons why Buffett looks to avoid that. But also, as you said, the volatility can be your friend if you look to, to buy in those trough periods. But what he's really looking for, as you said, is a consistent earning power in the businesses, and... Yeah. Um, that he invested. Now, before we uh, flip on to criteria number three, how does this tie into the eight timeless principles? Because we talk about mean reversion and the CAPE ratio, but how does earnings power fit into the eight principles, Steve?
1: I look at the earnings cycle, the earnings yield, sorry. And again, I think we talked about it previously, where what people want to talk about day in and day out is the actual price of the stock market. But you don't get to profit off that unless you sell. And then if you sell, Well, you're going to miss out on the dividends. So what Buffett looks for, as we talked about last week, is that sort of book value notion, the idea that there's two parts. There's the dividend, which is the money that you get, that can't be reinvested by the company. The rest of it that's left over should increase the company's assets or earnings. So therefore, you're getting sort of a a double whammy. And so we talk about it in the earnings yield rather than the, you know, the movement, the day-to-day movements of the market. And so, you know, we think that there's probably one part where I would disagree with Buffett, and I suspect it's probably because he's a hell of a lot richer than I am, and that would be, I think you can buy a fair business at a cheap price as well as a wonderful business at a fair price. So I, I think what happens is a lot of people look at the, Old or the later Warren Buffett, which is like, oh, you know, I want to buy big companies with systemic moats and all that sort of routine. But what I think is, yeah, but that's fine. But Buffett didn't get rich that way. He got rich buying the Ben Graham nets, which were average businesses, but they were cheap. And so I think, uh, you know, there's not the, I could be wrong, Pete, but I don't see that many businesses with sustainable moats that you would hold for 20 or 30 years, to be quite honest. I don't think that's, it may have been more valid, I'm not sure, but I think it's you can buy fair businesses at cheap prices and work it that way.
0: Yeah, I think to be fair, if you listen carefully to what Buffett has said in recent years, it's different for him now simply because of his sheer size. But if he was managing less than $10 million of his own capital, he would be looking to scrutinising, as you said, basically just looking for those Opportunities, because there are always things you can find, and he would be looking to return maybe fifty percent per annum instead of you know the the maybe uh, the the teens, which you know if you're managing tens of billions, uh, that's the reality. It's a dead weight on return. So, criteria number three: looking for businesses earning good returns on equity while employing little or no debt. Now, I did see a really interesting interview a while back. I think it was probably on YouTube where Buffett said, um, he talked about the dangers of leverage. And I think using leverage when you're young can be a valid way to go uh, because you've got time on your side. But Buffett, uh, it was interesting to hear him say that him and Charlie Munger, both they knew that they would get rich and they therefore they weren't in a hurry. They knew they would be very wealthy because they understood compounding and they understood how to consistently generate returns. And he he name-checked a few others who used leverage and really wanted to accelerate the process and ended up blowing up in the process. So business businesses earning good returns while employing little or no debt. So as you said, I think Buffett... He's not averse to debt, but he'd probably have a preference for businesses that don't carry debt. And I think there's an aspect of if a company can generate good returns on equity without the use of debt, then there's less risk of management making catastrophic cock up, I guess, because uh, while you might have a good CEO or good management today, there's no guarantee that you won't have an idiot running the business in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it ties into the next point we'll talk about and the criteria of Buffett with management. But yeah, he loves good return on equity. I remember years ago, I was quite surprised because American return on equity in in a lot of cases is actually lower than Australia. But as I said, Australia is such a great place to invest because we're small and we're rich and we've got these big companies that dominate the market. But that point aside, if you, you think about Berkshire itself, he's done an un, an unbelievable job to, to compound that at 22%, you know, per year for like 40 or 50 years. But I think it's probably hard to argue that high return on equity companies are good investments. But as I sort of mentioned in the previous point, having a moat's really good, but sustaining it is really difficult. And that we'll talk about that in the next point. But it just brings me back to that point about you know people saying oh you know i'm going to be like warren buffett or i'm going to win. i'm a value investor like warren buffett and the thing is that you know what i found was you hear value guys say oh, i'm a value investor and yet their turnovers like two and three they turn over companies after two and three years or four years you know like it's not nothing i think anyway like the way warren buffett invests so i think buffett's not adverse to debt I think, but I think he uses it very, very wisely, if I can put it that way.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people that call themselves value investors these days, well, it's interesting, I heard Buffett say, you know, if you bought a house for a million dollars and somebody came along the next day and said, oh, I'll give you 700 for it, you're not going to sell because you you made the decision to buy that home because you thought it was a good place to live and it would do well for you over the long run. But he's, I think too many value investors are way too focused on the price, not enough actually on the underlying business. So yeah, now, now criteria number four, we almost touched on already, management, good management in place because I guess if we buy shares in a company, there's very little we can do to influence what management do. I know some people try to be activist shareholders, but it's pretty difficult for the everyday investor. So uh, I think Buffett's quote was, buy a company that any old idiot could run because one day you'll have an idiot running yeah. it or words to that effect. So i.e. a business like Coca-Cola will end of the day, people are addicted to the product and it's everywhere. So um, it's not a business that requires an amazing CEO or management necessarily. So how does that tie into the eight principles? Because this is more of a soft point. It's not really, there's no sort of numbers in there. How do you measure a good management and is it that important? There was a book or there is a book
1: I read years ago called The Halo Effect. And it's a really great book because what he talked about was saying, You know, you get these new CEOs, Travis Kalanick, Phil Hastings, Reed Hastings at Netflix, Adam Newman at WeWork, and these guys are lauded with these halos. You know, they can do no wrong and they're all, you know, they're all groovy and they're all cutting edge management and all this sort of stuff. But you find that they crash down to earth pretty quickly and so... Ben Graham, Buffett's old mentor, said that you shouldn't count management. You should basically just look at the numbers. And I think he's probably, that's where Buffett got a little bit of the, you know, um, an idiot will run it one day type of routine. I think he probably got that off Ben Graham. So, what Buffett is saying, though, as an investor, that basically management, he talks a lot about management and he really sings the praises. Of good managers. But then he's also at other times said, what's that one about? It's the horse, not the jockey or, you know, something like that, where he basically sort of says, like you alluded to with Coke, well, you know, an idiot can run Coke because, you know, everybody just buys Coke regardless of who's running it. So I think it's, is it important? I suppose it is. But the question is, I would argue the business cycle or the the capital cycle is probably more important. I mean, you know, Pete, You, if you start a business that is really just not a viable business, well, you can be bloody Harry Houdini, but you're probably not going to make it work. And if you do, a lot of it will be sort of more luck than skill. And so I think that's what sort of washes out in the end. That's my interpretation. I think Buffett's different. You know, he talks about you can't do a good deal with bad people and all that sort of stuff. So He's obviously very reliant on picking good people, but I think what Buffett determines as good people are basically you've got to be a really good capital allocator because if you've got a moat, you've got lots of cash coming in, so you've got to do something with it, and ethically you've got to be good in that sense. So you can't be a crook or in any type of way on the financial balance sheet and generally you've got to be able to invest wisely. You know, that step before we were talking about with a return on equity.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if I was investing in a startup, it's really a bet on the people as much as it is the idea, because if you've got good people, they'll execute. And yes, timing's important and so on. So criteria number five, simple businesses. Now we mentioned there how Buffett is not that keen on tech or businesses where there's a lot of tech where they won't understand it. Now, people often say to me, well, hang on a second, the future of the world is going to be technology how can you sort of say you know avoid technology companies well this is where i come back to the eight timeless principles we're not saying don't invest in technology companies that's that would be silly uh, but the reality is and we've talked about the volatility drag already identifying the next google or the next amazon is very hard to do and in fact amazon you know, would you have stuck it out through 90% drawdowns? Yeah. Um, I know everyone says in hindsight that they would have, but the reality is very few people can. Yeah. Uh, so this is where the eight timeless principles talk about uh, market cycles and valuations, but also the risk hierarchy. So we're not saying by any means that you should avoid the tech sector as an individual investor. In fact, uh, arguably, that wouldn't be a very good idea but the point is, look for those um, times when the tech sector has become cheaper and simply own the whole sector. You don't have to try and be a hero and pick the next big thing. So how does that uh, tie in, Steve? I-, I think if you look back through the history of the NASDAQ, I mean, there was a huge drawdown in 2009 and you can pick up the ETF at a cheap price and, of course, tech has done very well since. So, yeah, how does that, given that it's a volatile sector, how do you see that fitting into the the profile for an individual investor?
1: Yeah, that's the the volatility of tech is, what the, is probably, I think, the reason, one of the reasons Buffett stays away from it. I think the other one too is if you read about what Buffett likes and what he doesn't like in terms of balance sheets, he doesn't like capital expenditure and he doesn't like depreciation. Because what he says is there actually costs, I mean, we know CapEx is a cost to the business, but what he says is that, you know, if a company's got high capital expenditure costs, then it probably doesn't have a moat. And the same with, uh, and you know, with that depreciation goes hand in hand. So if, what Buffett says is that a lot of Wall Street guys look at depreciation and say, oh, well, we paid for the million dollar machine okay, now the rest of it's cash. And Buffett says, well, that's not really, you know, that's not really the way it works. Plus, the probably his main point is that if you've got depreciation and CapEx, that means that you've got to keep spending money on, you know, technology to stay up with the crowd. So, again, it's, it's those simple things like railways. You know, Buffett, one of the quotes was, you know, the internet is not going to change the way men shave. You know, so he really looks at the the product and says, where's the simplicity in it? Not the, He doesn't get any wow factor stuff, you know, like he doesn't go, wow, smartphone. He's not interested in that. He looks at where the simple elements of the business are and, as you mentioned you probably with technology, when you look at the, what's the criteria? Catastrophic loss, which is 70% more of the stock price, IT or tech companies are right up there because, you know, you find you either for every Google, there's probably a thousand tech companies that have lost everybody that have lost their investors money. So, you know, it's real sort of hit and miss stuff, which really, you know, I think we've sort of given everybody the idea that Buffett doesn't really like tech. And so you want to just say to yourself, avoid technology, and you'll probably be on a good path to start with.
0: Yeah, that's right. And ETF can be a helpful way to avoid having to try and be um, a, a, a stock picker in that sector, which is notoriously hard um, to do. So let's sum that up then. So of the six criteria, can you cherry pick are some to suit yourself? Are they all necessary? Or is the most important thing simply having criteria so that you've got a structure to invest? I think from what I've learned over recent years is that I, I like a simple life. I like investments that I don't have to worry too much about. So for me, ETFs fit that profile because there's a lot of sleep at night factor. I think where, if I want to invest in a company, I think one of the the greatest things I've learned from you is look for a cheap country, look for a cheap sector. And if you can find a big systemic company that fulfills both of those criteria, and you've got a high level of confidence that'll be around for 50 years, well, that's a great investment because you can pick it up while the sector's out of favor and the country's out of favor. And you've got a good long runway there for making long-term returns. So, But of Buffett's six criteria, do you think they're all... Uh, critical or can you cherry pick your favourites?
1: Yeah, I think just while we're on that, the last one is an offering price and we won't talk about that much because that's just Buffett saying he won't negotiate. You know, he offers a price and that's it. So he doesn't get into Dutch auctions and stuff.
0: So, can... Yeah, you, you said my deliberate mistake there, only including five <laughs> of the six criteria.
1: <laughs> I know everyone's out there going, hang on, that's five. What's the magic
0: trick? <laughs> um, yeah, I knew I was doing something wrong. Can you cherry pick?
1: Well, uh, I mean... Ben Graham originally had 10 criteria then he got it down to 7 and then i think it got down to 3 Joel Greenblatt put forward the the magic formula which is basically 1 um, Tobias Carlyle fellow Aussie has the acquirers multiple which is 1 so the thing that i always wonder i i don't i don't wonder the thing i always Sort of, I'm a little bit down on Buffett and Munger. About is there steadfast idea that you know the only the way they invest is the only way you can make money over the long term? And it's you know it's not true. There's heaps of people who've made money trading, even day trading, or you know quantitative finance or technical analysis. So the I, I assume, or I would say, those characteristics are good if you want to invest like Warren Buffett. But I I personally just don't think that you're going to get rich in a reasonable amount of time. I've got to be a little bit cautious because, I mean, Buffett says, you know, Charlie and I knew we were going to be rich. That's okay. But, you know, I think the world is different to when Buffett started and all those sorts of things. So can you cherry pick? I don't think you can. But my argument would be that you can, if you missed out on one of them, it wouldn't be like, oh my God, that's the killer. It hasn't got good management. So when we look at the eight principles, the idea was to say they're all tied together. But as you know, Pete, we talk about the main three, which is the market cycles, asset allocation and rebalancing. And if you get those three, well, you're already going to do buy low sell high diversification you know that sort of thing so the same and i think it's the same with these criteria if you get companies that are good companies decent management and you buy them at the right time you know the idea of price what you pay values what you get i think you'll probably do all right over the long term
0: yeah that makes perfect sense so uh We'll put the six criteria in the show notes. I don't have to run them, run through them all again here. But I think it's clear that for Uncle Warren and, and Charlie, big businesses, simple businesses that they can understand with good management uh, and businesses they know will be around for the long run that they can buy at a good price. Well, they won't go too far wrong with that. So I think that's it for today, Steve. I think we've... Um, finished about on time i think after my vaccine i'll probably do for a lie down and go and eat some crisps or something but i'll leave you to go and enjoy the remainder of your great weekend thanks mate we'll see you next week eh? cheers thanks everyone Bye. thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book low rates high returns Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.